The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 20, the party makes the journey to Dwervar, the dwarven highforge, in the Skundramoir. Having all but admitted to the rest of the party that he forged the summons, Harl is increasingly worried that he might be in for some serious consequences when they get there. Upon arrival at the impressive mountaintop citadel, they're greeted by the seneschal, Valiador Glimmerax. He does not take them to see the Lord of the High Forge, but instead instructs them to get some sleep and meet him again in the morning. Very early the next day, the summons comes, and curiously, Valiador still does not take them to see Lord Cleneth. Valiador tells them that the Lord of Dwarvar does not even know they are there yet. He explains vaguely that their unannounced presence would exacerbate certain current problems at the Citadel, and then asks them to perform a day-long task while he prepares Lord Cleneth for their return later on. Chapter 21 Part 1 Day 25, Dawn. Party status, Harl, 16 of 16 hit points. Kagan, 16 of 16 hit points. Eridine, eight out of eight hit points. Gyrios, 14 out of 14 hit points. Umura, 10 out of 10 hit points. They'd only been gone for half an hour, walking along a thin trail in the semi-dim of pre-dawn, when the sun crested the cloud line and presented them with a sight so profound that they literally gasped in awe to see it. It was as though they were looking down on a misty ocean of gold and white. The sensation of standing above the clouds was altogether magical, astonishing. The clouds themselves contrasted starkly with the dark rock of the mountain, and so everywhere they looked, a plain of darkness lay against a sea of light and beauty. Gyrios at once dropped his pack and produced the coin that was his holy symbol. This is a sign from Mazagar, he said. I will stop to pray. Although they had hardly begun their journey, this proclamation came as no surprise to the party members and they offered no resistance. Certainly, it was undeniable that what they beheld was nothing short of splendor. Umora quickly found a rock to sit beside and produced her spellbook. She was silently studying in moments. It is a beautiful sight, said Kagan. You can never really get used to it or grow tired of it, agreed Harl, 
gazing out into the distance. We must be very high up to be able to look down on the clouds thus, Kagan observed. Do you know how high up we are? Oh, about ten or eleven thousand feet, I suppose, Harl replied. As you can see, ours is not the tallest mountain in the range. He pointed at several taller peaks in the distance. But it was specially chosen for us. Oh, by whom? asked Kagan. Harl gave him a quizzical look, as though checking to see if Kagan was pulling his leg. Why, Gruenmog, of, of course. Forgive me, Harl, I know very little about your folk, or about anything, really. Is Gruenmog one of the dwarven deities? Gruenmog, Harl corrected, is the only one. The young dwarf nodded decisively. I'm not sure how you humans keep count of your gods. You seem to have one for everything. As long as I've got my foot in my mouth, can I ask you another stupid question? Kagan had found a smooth rock to sit on, and was currently setting his backpack on the ground. Arl smiled and nodded. He was proud of his culture and enjoyed talking about it with humans. Ask away, woodsman. Well, began Kagan, I was just wondering why the High Forge is so big. The ceiling in your great hall was at least 60 feet high. The doors were large enough to accommodate giants. And? Prompted Harl. And so I was just wondering, with dwarves being, uh, not, as, not especially tall, why would they build their citadel to such dimensions? I don't know. Like I said, it's a stupid question. Not such a stupid question, Kagan, said Harl. He scratched his bushy black beard. Dwarvar was built in olden times way back in the Age of Legends. At that time, the dwarves were constantly at war with the giant races. Not just giants, but ogres and trolls, you see. The citadel was built so large to let our enemies know that we dwarves were not afraid of them. That we would not hide in holes or caves or down mine shafts. We dwarves are a proud people, and our structures embody this pride, physically. It was my forefather's way of defying the tyranny of evil races. Those huge iron doors told any giant, Come then, we fear thee not. Harl gesticulated with his axe as he spoke. Well, that makes sense when you explain it like that, remarked Kagan. Of course it does. Name me one race of people that does not build castles and towers of unnecessary scale. I can't, I, I mean, I, I know very little of the world, said Kagan. I'll wager that your capital city of Silmoral has its massive buildings, too. Perhaps you're right. How strange that I've been to Dwarvar, but never to Silmoral. Kagan laughed and Harl gave him another smile. After a time, Girius rose from his knees and gathered his things. Umura closed her book with a snap and pushed it back into her shoulder bag. Time to go? asked Kagan. They all nodded, and shortly they were back on the narrow path and making their way down the mountainside. Between the Lines The Religion of the Dwarves Gruenmog, the Defender Dwarven historians and archivists cannot agree whether the word for father comes from Gruenmog, the actual name of their deity, or if the name of their deity comes from the word for father. Perhaps the distinction is academic. Regardless of the name's origin, father is an apt descriptor of the dwarves' single god, Gruenmog is the model of all things Dwarven. He is strong, brave, and fiercely protective of his family. He is a builder and a provider. He is both just and stern. 
The pious among the dwarves believe that Gruenmog forged the world of Merith and shaped it upon his mighty anvil. Sparks from his hammer strokes became the stars. The oceans were there only for the purpose of cooling the earth and metals that would make up the sprawling lands. He sowed his own essence into the earth in the forms of gems and crystals. Dwarves know that gems are valuable for far more than their capacity to become things of beauty. Every gem contains the essence of the creator and is holy. Large gems are in a class of their own and can be used in the crafting of magical items for those with the wisdom, skill, and sometimes holy favor to do so. Dwarven priests are rare, for the race values action over words, and only a select few choose to spend a life in prayer. Those that do usually join the ranks of the Solemn. The Solemn are dwarves who choose the path of the cleric and devote themselves, almost to the point of the annihilation of their own identity, to the service of Grunmog. They're easy to know when encountered, for they wear a plain iron mask that shows a sexless and expressionless face at all times. They do not interact or recreate with other dwarves, and leave a life of monastic asceticism. The main job of the Solemn is to curate the necropolis that is a feature of every dwarven stronghold, no matter what size it is. The necropolis, or City of the Dead, is completely off-limits to all but the Solemn and the deceased who are entombed within. Every necropolis is built by the Solemn, and is used to inter the bodies of dwarven champions and craftsmen of distinction. Most dwarves are cremated when they die, or buried, if cremation is not possible. For the dwarven people, it is the method of passing that is most important. Aside from natural causes, any death that occurs outside of combat is a thing to be doubly mourned, for it means that the spirit of the deceased will depart the living realm alone, with no chance to bid their loved ones farewell, and will travel to the Grey Halls in isolation. For the dwarves, who live and breathe by their sense of community, this is a tragedy of the highest order. It's common, upon hearing the news of the death of another dwarf, to ask how they died. Other cultures might find such a question rude or insensitive, but when asked by a dwarf, it shows only genuine concern for the spirit of the deceased. Holy places such as the necropolis, among others, are sometimes recognizable for their lack of statues and for the absence of any art that mimics reality. Depictions of Grunmog himself are strictly forbidden it being believed that any attempt to capture the perfection of the Father would unavoidably fall short of the God's true form, and thus would be an insult. Dwarven holy places are, instead, decorated with woven, carved, and forged geometric or abstract designs. Grunmog does not have a symbol. As the dwarves have no pantheon, there is no need to distinguish the followers of one deity from another. of Edge of Your Seat Adventure? Do you like dangerous jungles filled with the undead, ancient dangers and sarcastic goblins? Do you want to hear five friends battle their way through both bad accents and the land of Chult in the search of an insidious death curse? Are you looking for a detergent that actually does what it promises? If you answered yes to all of these questions, except possibly the detergent one, then do I have a deal for you? Listen to Trolls of the Two-Ton Bridges, an actual play Dungeons & Dragons podcast from the UK, playing through the Doom of Annihilation campaign. What's the cost? Nothing. It's free. Yes, you heard that right. Free to listen to on all podcast apps. 
Everyone loves it. Just listen to this person I've just met. Can you get that out of my face? See? So join us at the table every Tuesday with Trolls of the Two-Ton Bridges. Adventure. Chapter 21, Part 2, Day 25, Late Morning, Party Status, Harl, 16 of 16 hit points, Kagan, 16 of 16 hit points, Eridine, 8 of 8 hit points, Gyrios, 14 of 14 hit points, Umura, 10 out of 10 hit points. Spells Available, Umura has memorized Hold Portal, and Shield. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds. I'm still not really clear about something, said Umura, breathing hard and breaking the silence of several hours of walking. They'd been following a barely there path that zigzagged down the mountainside on its eastern face. This path was much smaller and less used than the trail they'd taken the day before. At times, it completely disappeared. It seemed too small for a pony, let alone a wagon, and the companions spent much of their time walking in single file, which is perhaps, coupled with the exertion necessary for navigating the steep terrain, why they spoke so little. What is it I can clear up for you, Umura? replied Harl. The dwarf was not winded at all. Well, your last name is Stonecarver. Isn't that right? asked the magic user. Mm-hmm. That's correct. It's an old, old family name. Well, the Lord of Dwarvar, Lord Cleneth, she's also a stone carver, isn't that so? Indeed she is, and we are kin. The rest of the party's attention perked up now, for they'd all been wondering the same thing. Harl, are you a prince? blurted Kagan. A prince? Ha, no, hardly. There are many, many stone carvers in the High Forge. I'm a distant cousin of Lord Cleth, that's all. Nothing special. But technically, you're in line for the throne, right? Asked Hagen. I mean, you have royal blood, right? Harl looked over his shoulder and smiled wryly. You're wrong to think of me so. What, what you say is true, but a hundred dwarves would have to drop dead before I sat the throne of Dwarvar. Ah, mind your step here. Can you see ahead? There's a large crack in the stone beside the path. Do you see it? Mark it well. We must depart the path and give that spot a wide berth. Understand? Don't get too close to it or we'll all have cause to regret it. What's in that crack, Harl? asked Umura. Nothing friendly, replied Harl. There's a creature made a home in there. We suffer it to stay because it protects the way against intruders and bothers us not if we avoid the path by its lair. Follow me. Harl climbed to a short ledge and moved well away from the path. He skidded over some loose rocks, turned, and motioned for the rest to follow. Mind you come the same way I did now, and don't look down. Harl should not have said that last bit, for it made Gyrios look. The detour took them painfully close to the edge. To the right, the mountainside fell away into the misty void. The cleric's stomach lurched a little, and he forced his eyes back to the solid ground. Before long, they'd avoided the hazard and were on their way once again. An hour later, they had arrived at the Shrine of Gruenmog. It was built into the lee of the mountainside, shielded from view of the path by a huge boulder. The entrance was a single square door of stone fitted into a thick frame, similarly of stone. 
the face of the door showed a design of interconnected circles and semicircles, asymmetrical but balanced and beautifully carved. As they drew nearer, they could see that the door was slightly open. That's strange. Very strange, muttered Harl to himself. Umura overheard and was immediately reminded of Soli. Those were the same words he'd used when he'd found the entrance to the complex under the tower. She experienced a wave of sudden, profound sadness. Harl pushed at the door and it swung the rest of the way open on invisible hinges. It made a small grating sound. Oh, I almost forgot, he said. Before entering, he slung down his backpack and withdrew the Branabil lamp from the night before. It was still hooded against the glow of the insects it carried. The dwarf entered the shrine and removed the hood from the lamp. The familiar orange glow filled a corridor that was perfectly square and wide enough for them to walk two abreast. Harl and Kagan went in front, followed by Gyrios and Umura, with Eridine bringing up the rear. Unlike the Great Hall, this place had been built from stone blocks. They were large, each a perfect three-foot cube, and there was no mortar visible. The blocks were held in place by fit and gravity. The corridor went straight ahead for 50 feet, terminating in another door. This one was made of polished steel. Like the front door, it had been left partway open. Is it just me or is the floor sloping up a little? Asked Umura to nobody in particular. Very good, replied Harl. We'll make a dwarf of you yet, Umura. We dwarves often build entryways like this one. It keeps the rain out, you see. Although he smiled, Harl's expression belied his worry. Is something wrong? Asked Umura. What? No, uh, it's just... Well, maybe she stepped out to fetch water from the spring. Normally these doors would all be closed, you see. I'm sure everything is all right. He didn't seem very convinced. A strange sound came from up ahead. By the time the party had reached the second door, every one of them could hear it clearly. Eridine had noticed it from the entrance, but when she'd tried to speak, no sound had come out. And then Harl and Umura were speaking, and she decided it wasn't worth interrupting them over. What in the world would make such a sound as this? Elani? Called Harl, softly at first, and then again louder. Solemn Elani? The noise stopped immediately. Some primitive alarm sounded in Eridine's brain, and she began to draw her short sword. A new sound began, a skittering sound. Now they saw something ahead as well. An orange glow, exactly like the glow from their lamp, flickered from beyond the door. Solomilani! shouted Harl, and then they were clearly visible. They crawled on the floor and across the walls with alarming speed. Four fully grown fire beetles, glowing bright angry orange, with black mandibles scissoring and antenna flicking wildly, streamed into the hall and charged them. Fire beetles are two and a half feet long and are equipped with a large set of mandibles that deal an impressive two to eight points of damage. That's the equivalent of two daggers, so these natural weapons must be fairly large and extremely sharp. In addition, they have an AC of four and one plus two hit dice. I don't want to roll four times, so I'll roll two sets of creatures. The first two fire beetles have... Ooh, seven plus two, that's nine hit points. The second set of two fire beetles have... Well, it looks like they'll min out at five plus two. Still, that's seven hit points each. Fire beetles are extremely hostile, but have a morale of just seven. For low-level creatures, these guys are pretty tough. 
Because they're fighting in a hall, I'll rule that Kagan and Harl will do most of the fighting. But because these creatures are small and fast, and especially considering that they can use the walls, and even ceilings, to maneuver, I'll have one slip past to face. Looks like Gyrios. So Harl will have to deal with... One, and Kagan will need to take on two. That leaves one for Eridine and Gyrios, while Umura will have time to move well back of the fight. Neither of her spells will help in this battle, and she's really no good in close combat. Round one. Initiative. The fire beetles. A three. The party. A two. Like their tiny cousins, the cockroach, these nasty bugs are extremely fast. The first two fire beetles attack Kagan. Kagan has an AC of four. They'll need a 15 to hit him. The first one attacks. A 16, that's a hit for just two points of damage. The second fire beetle also attacks Kagan. A 14, close, but it's a miss. The third fire beetle is attacking Harl. Harl's AC is also four, and so this fire beetle also needs a 15 to hit. The roll, a six. The fourth and last fire beetle, using the wall, has reached Gyrios. It attacks. The roll is a one, that's a critical fail. This fire beetle will miss its next turn. Now it's the party's turn to attack. Kagan swings his hand axe. As the fire beetles have an AC of four, he'll need a 15 to hit, although Kagan does have a plus one strength bonus, making that a 14. I've rolled a 14, that's a hit. Four? Just two points of damage. Harl swings his battle axe. Likewise, he'll need a 14 to hit with his bonus. With an 18, Harl has also scored a hit. For five points of damage, that's a solid blow. Gyrios, using his new flail, attacks the fire beetle that has found its way to him. A two will not do it. Eridine has her short sword out and also lunges. A seven is a miss. Round two, initiative. The fire beetles. A three, the party. A three, this round, the action is simultaneous. If any of the combatants die, they'll still get their chance to strike. Let's begin with the fire beetles. The first fire beetle attacks Kagan. It is rolled a one and will miss its next turn. A second fire beetle attacks Kagan. A 15, one of its mandibles slices through the leather of Kagan's boot. He takes four points of damage, and now Kagan is down to ten hit points. The third fire beetle attacks Harl. A sixteen. This fire beetle has hit as well. Harl is sliced for five points of damage. The beetle attacking Gyrios rolled a one last turn, and will miss its attack this turn. Now Kagan returns the attack. He brings his hand axe down in an overhead chop. He needs a fourteen. The roll is a 13. The bug manages to get out of the way just in time. Harl swings his axe as well. An 11 is not good enough. Next up is Gyrios with his flail. I've rolled a 2. The cleric is clumsy with his new weapon. Erdine jabs with her short sword. She's got a 15. That's a hit. She manages to sever one of the bug's antenna. It takes five points of damage and has two hit points left. Round three. Initiative. The fire beetles. They've rolled a two. The party, 
a four. The party will act first. Kagan tries to stomp down on one of the creatures. A three. The bug easily skitters out of the way. Harl, raising his axe all the way over his head, brings it down with all his might. A sixteen. For seven points of damage, this bug is smashed to paste. Agirios, struggling with his new flail, needs a 15 to hit. A 1. With a critical fail, he'll lose his next round. Aradine tries to follow up her last hit with another. A 5 will not do it. Now, only three fire beetles remain. Two of them are still on Kagan. The first one had a critical fail last round and will miss its turn, but the other one will certainly try to bite him. A 16. For six damage, it climbs up Kagan's shin and closes its mandibles over his knee. Kagan is down to four hit points. One of the bugs attacks Gyrios. It's rolled an eight and missed. Round four. Initiative. The fire beetles. A two. The party. A six. The party wins again. Kagan is still facing off against two of the creatures. One of them is on his leg. He kicks it against the wall and swings his axe. A 17, that's a hit. Five points of damage splits it in two. Harl swings, hoping to help Kagan out. An 18. For eight points of damage, Harl's battle axe smashes the creature and splits its carapace in two. However, it is not dead. With one hit point left, it can still attack. Gyrios had a critical fail last turn and will lose his chance to attack this turn. He's really not used to this new weapon. Aridine jabs in. She's rolled an 18. That's a hit for... Three points of damage. The tip of her sword enters the body of the bug and it comes out, trailing its guts, and it stops moving. At this point, I'm going to make a morale check for the remaining bug. Fire beetles have a fairly low morale of seven, so there's a good chance it will flee here. A six. It's days. I'll also give it a 1 in 6 chance to attack a new target. Nope, it's gonna stay on Kagan. It needs a 15 to hit him. A 6 is a miss, and Kagan is safe. Round 5. There's only one fire beetle left. This should be the last round of combat. Initiative. The fire beetle. A 5. The party. A 3. The fire beetle, still on Kagan, tries to bite him. I've rolled a 10. It's unable to get its mandibles through the thick leather of his boot. This bug has been cut in half, but just refuses to die. Kagan tries to stomp it. He needs a 14. A 9 is a miss. Maybe Harl can finish the job. He's rolled an 18. That's a hit. There's no need to roll for damage here. With one hit point left, this bug is smashed to bits. When Harl pulls his axe away, it trails sticky, stinking goo that glows with an orange light. Combat is over. Gyrios decides to use his cure spell on Kagan. I've rolled a five, so his spell, which heals two to seven points of damage, restores six hit points to Kagan. Post-combat stats are now as follows. Harl, 11 of 16 hit points. Kagan, 10 of 16 hit points. Eridine, Gyrios, and Umura 
are all at maximum, with 8, 14, and 10 hit points, respectively. With their only curative spell used up, and their two fighters each wounded, the party had better hope there's nothing else waiting for them inside this shrine. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to support the show, the best way by far is to leave a rating or review on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. I'd like to share one of these great reviews right now. Ehugs writes, I spent the whole day listening and cannot wait for more. The podcast is incredibly engaging and has inspired me to up my game in my own D&D group's adventures. A true wild encounter. Ehugs, thank you so much for your review. For more information on Tale of the Manticore, you can visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. I often post maps, encounter sheets, artwork, and random thoughts up there. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on social media. I'm at ManticoreTale on Twitter, and Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. Or you can contact me at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. The adventure will continue next time on Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Would you like to know more about some of the most influential role-playing games out there? Roll to Save is a podcast dedicated to the history of RPGs and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts from and at rolltosave.blog. We take a long hard look at the origins of some of the biggest games and their often turbulent histories. Roll to Save also looks at how modern games have been shaped by the games that came before. So, if you fancy delving into the fascinating history of role-playing games, visit rolltosave.blog or search for Roll to Save on your podcast directory of choice. You can also contact us at at savepodcast on Twitter. Join us on a trip down memory lane. You might be surprised at what you learn.